for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am joined in the studio by my regular co-host, Murray County historian and president of the African-American Heritage Society, Joanne McClellan. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are speaking to the curator of Nashville's Jefferson Street Sound Museum, Mr. Lorenzo Washington. Mr. Washington is a native of East Nashville, where he became an entrepreneur of note and an observer and participant in the Jefferson Street music scene, which has had a tremendous impact upon music and culture all over the world. Mr. Washington's life has been chronicled in his autobiography called Rising Above the Lorenzo Washington Story, which was published in 2021 by JSM Publishing. Mr. Washington, welcome to History's Hook. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So you're the curator of the Jefferson Street Sound Museum. We're going to talk about Jefferson Street and the music scene there. But first, tell us, how did you come to be the keeper of the Jefferson Street music legacy? Well, um, a few of the artists and musicians were really concerned about their legacy uh, on Jefferson Street. And there were so many great musicians and artists that wasn't very well known, but they were great talents uh, and great people. And uh, some of them was my personal friends, like Herbert Hunter, Frank Howard, uh, Marion James, Jackie Shane, and a number of others uh, were personal friends of mine. So I was concerned also about the legacy of Jefferson Street and uh, the legacy of all of these artists. And we used to uh, uh, sit around over at my house where the museum is now was my home. And uh, I would invite uh, some of the musicians and artists over just to sit around and talk and reminisce about uh, what took place back in the 40s to the 70s. And um, after a while, uh, they start bringing artifacts over, you know, and we sitting around talking about the artifacts uh, and other things that they were bringing. And so when they would uh, get ready to leave, I said, well, why don't you leave this uh, uh, sitting on the shelf over here so that uh, I can show some other folks. So they start leaving artifacts uh, and other memorabilia uh, at the uh, at my house, and uh, eventually, uh, I had some people to come in and say, you know, you're starting a museum, just the way a lot of folks started museums back in the day uh, in your house, and uh, it just went from there, and just sort of mushroomed, and and with my intent being just to recognize and to make sure other folk recognize the legacy of these artists. I was a curator for 21 years in 
political history primarily, but I love the objects. The objects are always the thing that drew me to history. Tell me, what's your favorite object in your collection? Well, one of the favorites now, I've got uh, bricks from the New Era Club. I was passing the New Era Club. They were tearing it down. The New Era Club was where uh, us locals loved uh, to go on the weekends. And I've got those bricks, and on those uh, bricks I wrote uh, the last of the New Era Club, and I've got a piece of the floor in this little case and a piece of the mirror from behind the bar in this little case. So that's one of my favorites. But, you know, I've got pictures, and I've got uh, uh, a mixing board from WLAC Radio that a gentleman brought over and donated uh, to the museum. And that's one of my favorite pieces. I've got a piano. You said one, but here I go. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a, a piano uh, over there uh, sitting in the front uh, that W.O. Smith from the W.O. Smith Music School uh, used uh, to teach the, the kids in the neighborhood. That's amazing. Well, let's let's talk about the neighborhood because to anybody who's not familiar with the history of Nashville, Jefferson Street, as we're going to talk about it today, no longer exists. It's just not there. And, and we'll get into that in a minute. What's amazing about you and your story, to my mind, we're going to talk about Jefferson Street, but we're going to spend a lot of time on you because you're, I think, every bit a part of the fabric of, of that space in Nashville, and uh, it's an important one. So you are born in East Nashville in 1943. Describe East Nashville in that area. What was that area like in Nashville in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s? Well, that we lived in a little area uh, not too far from the Comlum River. And uh, it was a mixed area. Uh, our neighbors uh, were black and white. And we were like family, uh, even during that years of segregation. But over there, where we lived, you know, we didn't see the color thing so much. Uh, when I was coming up as a kid, uh, we used to spend the night uh, at um, uh, Bubba Fields. That was my friend's name. And we used to spend the night at Bubba's, and uh, he used to spend the night with us. And I remember Bubba Fields, they had, it looked sort of like a farm. It was sort of like a farm. They had a couple of uh, cows and a lot of chickens, and they had a pony that we used to ride when we went down the, to Bubba's. It was just a close-knit community uh, back then, and uh, we didn't have you know, a lot of fights and all of that kind of stuff. We had a field right next to my house uh, where we live. And that field, we we put a basketball goal up uh, on a tree. And the basketball goal was a banana basket, a basket, uh, you know, a fruit basket. And that, would, that was what we made our basketball goals out of. So we, we figured out how to enjoy life with very little. Kids make do. You lived make in an do. extended family in your grandmother's house that included siblings and grandparents and uncle, I think you said. Describe the house that you grew up in. Uh, the house was just a little, uh, four, it had four rooms. Uh, on the left side of the house, there were a room and then the kitchen right behind it. 
and on the right side, and it had two doors like a duplex, but it just made a circle around the house. It really wasn't a duplex. And on this side, on the right side, there were a living room, I mean, a front room, and that was where my grandmother slept. And uh, she somewhat adopted my cousin, and he was in, in had a little twin bed in the corner. And this room wasn't, was probably 12 by 12. We, uh, we slept, now I slept with my granddad a lot of times in the back room behind this front room. And over here on the left side, there were two double beds in there. All my brothers and myself at times slept in one of the beds and my mother slept in the other bed. That's pretty, and pretty close quarters. Pretty close quarters. And my uncle uh, had a little army cart that he used to pull out at night, and he would sleep in the kitchen. No indoor plumbing. No indoor plumbing. No uh, uh, electricity. During the beginning of those years, we had little Kolor lamps. Unbelievable. Yes. That sounds very much like my grandparents' home back in oh, the day. You, yeah. You, you mentioned you changed the wallpaper every year at Christmas. Oh, my mother loved to to change that wallpaper out, and we'd have to scrape the old wallpaper off, wet it and scrape it, and um, uh, she would always come up with this pretty flowery uh, wallpaper every Christmas. That was her big thing. She may have missed one or two, but that was her thing, was to wallpaper that room. I, I love uh, the story, and. That you come from pretty meager beginnings, but you can tell just by that one thing that your mother changed the wallpaper. She took pride in her home and uh, created a home. It sounds like for your extended family. Really? Yes, she did. She was a very, very good lady. Um, your, your nickname was Fats. Where did that come from? I met you. You're not. <laughs> well, it's it, it, it's hard to mention that at my mother at the same time because she had to born. A twelve-pound baby. Oh my! <laughs> That's how she. I got the name Fat. Gotcha. <laughs> Describe your parents for me. You called your mother by her first name. You didn't call her mom or mother. You called her by her first name. Tell me about your parents. Uh, my mother. Uh, my mother. My grandmother uh, was very loving uh, parents. You know, um, and my mother. Uh, as we call, as I called her, Julia. I don't know how that happened because my brothers, uh, which is three, I had three other brothers, and my brothers called her mama, but I called her Julia. I'm not sure how that came about. Were you the baby of the family? Oh, I was the oldest. Oh, okay. So I had a lot of the responsibility of a father figure during those years. I had to quit school uh, early. I, I worked uh, at a gas station. At, my first job was downtown at Lonnie Young's shoe shop. I remember so vividly. I was uh, 12 years old, and I made 50 cents uh, a day when I went to Lonnie Young's, and we had to walk about a mile and a half to get downtown. And, uh, and then I'd walk through downtown, delivering shoes uh, for Lonnie Young. He would repair shoes uh, for Castanets, Kane Sloan, Harvest, 
uh, and a couple of other spots uh, uh, downtown, and I would deliver shoes down there. You had a lot um, of you had a lot of jobs. Uh, you mentioned in your autobiography. T- tell me a little bit about school. How did you feel about school? Well, I I loved the idea of school, but I did not attend very often because I was always somewhere working or thinking about how we're going to survive, get the next meals on the table. My mother, she worked as a cleaning person at the Stormin building downtown. And she didn't make very much money at all, just barely enough to uh, uh, pay the rent. And the rent was cheap back then. So she may have read, I mean, may have made uh, $14 or $15 a week. And uh, I remember my mother, she couldn't read and she would make an X on the paper and uh, I would uh, sign her name, which I barely myself. But um, So you were working really to help the family out? To help the family, yes. You mentioned in the book that your father wasn't around very much. Who is your closest father father figure? Well, my granddaddy, uh, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy Gully, is, is how we called his name. Gurley Davis was his name. Yeah, Gurley Davis was his real name. Yes, we called him Daddy Gurley. And um, he was about the closest. Uh, he was uh, a meek, meek kind of person. Very, very nice guy. Everybody in the neighborhood just loved him. He provided for uh, all of his uh, kids and grandkids. And I was one of the grandkids. And I had a couple of aunts and the uncle. And whenever the the aunts would have a disagreement with their husband or their boyfriend, they would all end up up at the house. And so then that doubled uh, the amount of people that was in the house. And we'd make pallets, sleep on the floor, which we loved it, you know, to make pallets. But uh, You mentioned he was, was a really hard worker. Do you think that's where you got your work ethic from? A lot of them, yeah, because uh, at night uh, he would go down to the warehouse and and uh, pull the trash and clean the bathrooms at night. But he'd get up at five o'clock in the morning and to go to work. And that company uh, would supply businesses with uh, building materials. And I remember going down to the warehouse and we'd help him to unload the boxcars because I hope a boxcar would pull up and have a bunch of building materials and uh, he'd have us to come down there. And uh, although it would take two of us to pick up a 10 pound bag because we were uh, seven, eight years old, Hmm. nine years old at most. But we had, we had, you know, great leadership and, and none of the, uh, men that I was close to in the, in the family was educated. It was always the women that uh, were the, were the more, more educated one. And it was my grandmother was one. She could read. Uh, a lot of them couldn't read in the family. But we survived. They survived. They raised families. Uh, without having some of the skills 
that uh, it takes now to just survive. I mean, just survive. You mentioned that you worked a lot as a kid, uh, and you mentioned Lonnie Young's shoe repair. You also worked for Mr. Hoover's Amico Station. Talk, talk a oh, little yeah. bit about that experience and specifically about Billy Hoover, because uh, I think oh. this story speaks to an awful lot, including re- race relations in the 50s in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, well, I worked at Hoover's service station. I quit Lonnie Young's shoe shop downtown at the age of 13 and start working for Hoover's. And the reason I quit Lonnie Young's was because I had to walk so far to get to work and didn't make but a dime of 15 cents walking that far down there. And uh, But I'd get a, a couple of tips. And then uh, Mr. Young would, you know, would make sure that I got up to 50 cents um, before I left there in the afternoon. But when I started at Hoover's gas station, I started off making 50 cents a night. And th- that night uh, covered three hours a night for 50 cents. And uh, so I worked, I started working for Hoover's. And Mr. Hoover uh, was a, a great gentleman. He, he cared a lot about us uh, uh, black kids that he was working. And at first we uh, uh, was started off washing cars. And that's what we do on Saturdays and Sundays. And we worked uh, 14 hours on Saturday and 14 hours on Sunday. So I'd make $14 for the two days. And I worked 28 hours. Wow. And so, yeah. But I was able, out of that little money, I was able to save money and, uh, and buy a car. Uh, at the age of 15. You weren't old enough to drive it. I wasn't old enough to drive it, right. And I would leave the, I mean, the car would sit in front of the house until I could get some of the older guys to to drive. And most of them didn't have cars. And here I was 15 with a car. (laughs) uh, But wherever they, wherever my car went, I went. (laughs) So they were going to the beer joints, the beer taverns and, and just hanging out, you know, would come to Jefferson Street from East Nashville and ride down. It was a thrill just to ride down Jefferson Street and ride back up. Of course, back then, uh, gas was only about 26, 27 cents a gallon. So you could go a long ways with 50 cents. You, you know, uh, I mean, a long ways with 50 cents. You get two gallons of gas and ride all day. Mr. Washington, we have to take our first break. Uh, We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. We know that Jeep owners are one of a kind. Choose from our huge inventory or build your own one-of-a-kind Jeep from the ground up. Stop by today and one of our product specialists will help you customize the Jeep you want. Wrangler, Grand Cherokee, and Grand Wagoneer in the perfect color. Gotta have them options, powertrain, and more. And now, take advantage of the Jeep Wave program. More free maintenance at no additional cost. Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram, you can count on us. Online at ColumbiaCDJR.com. Does it really matter where you get your jewelry repaired? Of course it does. When you take your jewelry to a hometown jeweler, you build trust. 
Hello, I'm Rick Tillis, owner of Tillis Jewelry in downtown Columbia. I started as a goldsmith 30 years ago, and because of my experience and our staff, we ensure all repairs are completed to the highest of expectations. So yes, it does matter who repairs your jewelry. And if you are in need of any type of jewelry repair, please stop by for a free consultation. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole barn. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. For 40 years, Beck Dental Care has been the personalized and comfortable option for the health of your smile. The caring staff maintains a high level of safety protocols and attention to detail. Advanced technology provides your choice of sedation and the best of dental implant solutions to restore complete oral health. Open until 6 p.m. two nights a week. Call us at 931-388-8452 or visit us online at beckdentalcare.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. That was the Isley Brothers featuring Jimi Hendrix as a backup guitarist. We're going to talk a little bit about him. We have with us today, uh, joining us via phone, Mr. Lorenzo Washington, who's the curator of the Jefferson Street Sound Museum in Nashville. Mr. Washington, we were talking about your growing up years in Nashville. Uh, You made a wonderful segue into you getting a car, which you weren't old enough to drive, but you got your older buddies to drive it around for you. And uh, that was really your first trip down Jefferson Street. Uh, Amazing. So about how old were you when you first went to Jefferson Street? Now, uh, backing up just a little bit. Now, when I first went to Jefferson Street, I was a kid uh, during those seven, eight years, year old years. uh, We used to go a walk from Wichita uh, to Hadley Park on 28th in Jefferson. So it would be five, six, seven of us kids on Saturday mornings going to uh, Hadley Park to learn how to swim. And that's where we learned how to swim at was Hadley Park uh, at 28th and Jefferson. So it goes back to there. And with us walking down Jefferson Street uh, in on Saturday morning, and we would see uh, folk out there uh, cleaning up the yards. We would see kids, 
picking up balls and picking up trash out of the yards because a lot of the residents had fish fries and cookouts on Friday night. And so they be uh, out there cleaning up, getting ready for the rest of the day on Friday. So that's where it really started when we started going to Jefferson Street and going to Farmer's Market. My mother would go to Farmer's Market on uh, some uh, Fridays or Saturday morning. But uh, we took the trip to 28th and Jefferson to learn how to swim at Habit Park. And then later uh, is when I started working these other jobs and got the car and was having fun with, with friends, you know, hanging out. On, we didn't really just hang out on Jefferson, but we rode Jefferson. And we might would hang out down at the farmer's market. Uh, sometimes uh, different ones would uh, congregate down at farmer's market at 8th and Jefferson. So describe so, Jefferson Street. We remember it as sort of the center of really influential music. Uh, in Nashville. Separate from the country music scene that was going on elsewhere in the city, Jefferson Street sort of had its own thing. Describe Jefferson Street and its music scene. Who who owned the businesses and what were some of the businesses that you would find there? Now, on Jefferson Street, uh, back in those days, it was over 600, almost 700 different businesses, homes, uh, universities uh, uh, on Jefferson Street. We had Clothing stores, flower shops, car, car lots. We had um, we had shoe repair shops. We had, like uh, um, I say, churches, hospitals, funeral homes, bakeries, uh, some of uh, insurance companies. So some of whatever you would need to survive in a community, we had on Jefferson Street. So it was a, th- so, a thriving street. Uh, in it Nashville, was, predominantly black-owned businesses. Predominant. Now it was a a, a couple of Jews that had uh, clothing stores on Jefferson, and the the biggest uh, grocery stores was owned by whites over there on Jefferson. But ninety-eight percent of the businesses over there were owned by black influential uh, folk that were. Jefferson Street was what we called our Black Wall Street. Uh, it was a lot of mo- money flowing on Jefferson Street. The business owners over there gave a lot of folk jobs. You know, there were a lot of jobs on Jefferson Street and in the North Nashville community because of the black wealth that had taken place, you know, in North Nashville. You mentioned in the book that in 1958 to 1960, you were going downtown and saw some of the civil rights protesting taking place. You recalled sit-ins at lunch counters. And uh, did you take part in them? Well, at Woolworth, because hardly none of the local uh, guys and gals was involved with the sit-ins. But I was always ambitious. And uh, when I did go down there and stand across from Woolworth and see the activity going on in the in the uh, uh, restaurant, I always said that I was going to be a part of that set-in. But being that I wasn't a college student, I wasn't embedded into that group that was protesting down there. But as it got closer to the end, I did go in there. I got my nerves up to go in Woodward. 
and I sat on the stool. And uh, and that was uh, gratifying to me, uh, just to be a part of that movement. And when none of my my uh, local friends were involved in that at all, they weren't even thinking about it so much. But I gave it a lot of thought, and I did accomplish uh, one of my dreams were to be a part of the city. Did you feel connected to the bigger story that was unfolding at the time? I did. I did. And that was the only way I was going to be, I was going to have that feeling of connection was to actually be a part of it. And I did that. So I, I've got that story right now. You know, that, that story has lasted and is being uh, asked, you know, about me and my involvements in the city. Your friend Herbert Hunter was a musician who played on Jefferson Street. He seemed to be your entree into the music scene. Tell us a little bit about him and what he meant to you. Oh, Herbert and I were good buddies from about the age of five or six years old. But Herbert could always sing. You know, he was a good singer. He, he wasn't grand on the dancing now. I think I can that. <laughs> but, but the singing, man, he, he could well. The age of 10 or 12 years old, my uncle uh, put a quartet together, and I was his favorite nephew. And Herbert was one of the lead singers in the quartet. And uh, he, uh, Herbert, you know, really enjoyed having me up there on stage with him, with the quartet. But my uncle, the the gentleman that put the quartet together, he would always he would come over to to me and say, "Now they call me Fats, you know, even back back then." And he would say, "Fats." I want you to sing baritone. Now, I want you to sing baritone, but I want you to sing real low. (laughs) (laughs) He he never wanted me to want my voice to to identify in the quartet. (laughs) What what was the name of the quartet? I honestly can't remember the name of the quartet. Because we went to Mount Bethel Church, and I don't know whether he, because he was a deacon at Mount Bethel, and he sang uh, in one of the quartets at at Mount Bethel. But I can't remember the actual name of the quartet. And it was just us local guys, and I was his only family member in the quartet. I I do know Reverend Owen Hunter, and that was Herbert's dad. He was a minister also at at the church. But I can't remember the name, but uh, I do remember him telling me uh, a number of times, I want you to sing real. And that real, I think that real was going everywhere, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Interspersed among those 600 plus businesses on Jefferson were a, a series of clubs. Uh, some which uh, were a little bit notorious, others that went on to, to great fame. Here's some of the names. They're, they're wonderful. The Tiki Lounge, Gantz Club, The Flame Room, Hap Holidays Club, Brute Hayes Club, The Zanzibar, The Voters Club, Club Revelot. Uh, you mentioned The New Era, uh, The Club Baron, The Del Morocco Club. Those are those are clubs interspersed all along Jefferson Street. What different genres of music were being played, and who are some of the musicians that you might get to hear down there? Now, up and down Jefferson Street, you know, you had all of those uh, different clubs. Uh, 
uh, and bars. All of them were in clubs. There, some of them were just bars, and some of them was just beer joints. You know, just straight up beer joints. And uh, uh, you know, my friend Herbert got uh, uh, discovered, uh, and he made himself discovered. Uh, Ted Jarrett. Uh, uh, it was a little restaurant, a little uh, meet and three that was right there at 18th and Jefferson, right down from 18th a little bit, uh, between the Ritz Theater and and 18th and Jefferson. And Herbert uh, found out that Ted Jarrett would go in that little restaurant uh, just about every day and have lunch. So what Herbert did when they, cause they would always play the jukebox. And when uh, they put the, the, the uh, money in the jukebox and play the records, Herbert would stand outside the door of the restaurant and sing uh, to the record that was playing in order to try to get Ted Jarrett's attention. Uh, because uh, he knew that Ted uh, could have been the the gateway to his future. And Herbert was, I think, almost 17 or 17 uh, back then. And he was very crafty, you know, for him to go and stand in front of that door and sing to the music that they were playing on the jukebox, I, I think was a smart gesture. And Herbert ended up getting picked up by Ted Jarrett. Ted Jarrett uh, did some writing for him, came up with a couple of songs. And by the time he was uh, 17, almost 18 years old, he had a record on the radio. So that got him involved uh, more with the music. And then all of the other restaurants and clubs, you know, and I go to the uh, Club Stillaway, which was the Revelot, uh, Club Revelot at one time. Um, uh, the club Stillaway was one of the local spots where a lot of the local folk, like Fred Waters, and the Imperials, different different groups would hang out and play at the uh, the the Revelot, and what we ended up calling it, which it, the name changed to the Club Stillaway, and some of everybody played there, uh, like Joe Tex, uh, James Brown. Um, Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, it was just many uh, different names that played in all of these different clubs. And and it was jazz uh, in, in one club uh, down the street here. The Browns, uh, Browns Hotel was, was jazz, uh, basically jazz. The Browns Hotel on Jefferson was one of the more exclusive restaurants uh, on Jefferson, and as I tell my story at times, and I heard this from folk like Watt Watson, um, uh, that the, the Browns Hotel and 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 restaurant uh, dinner club, rather, uh, they were the only club on Jefferson Street that served you with and had cloth napkins. Everybody else had paper napkins, but. Uh, that place, uh, Brown's Dinner Club, was so exclusive. People like Nat King Cole stayed in that hotel because that was the more exclusive hotel on the street. Muhammad Ali, Joe Lewis, the boxer, uh, Jackie Robertson, the great home run hitter, 
all these folk, uh, when they come to Nashville, stayed at the Browns Hotel because it was during the Jim Crow area segregation, uh, uh, you know, and they couldn't stay in the hotels and eat at the restaurants downtown. So all of the action in those days came to Jefferson Street, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, Louis Armstrong. All of the real action was on Jefferson Street during those early years. And you you had a variety of music that you could uh, go and listen to. And it was about the blues and jazz and R&B, you know, we had it all. That little clip that we played had Jimi Hendrix playing in the background. Really, Jefferson Street is his start, right? That's that's where he yeah. makes his bones. Well, that was, yeah, because uh, he and uh, Johnny Jones, he met Johnny Jones. And Johnny Jones told me this himself, that he met Jimi Hendrix in Clarksville, that there was this little club in Clarksville that they played at every week. And Jimi Hendrix used to come to the club and and listen to him. And he said that one night he was in there, Jimi Hendrix came in and they were getting ready to take a break. And this is uh, has been on all kind of little specials and stuff that uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, when they would take a, a break, Jimi Hendrix would come up to the stage and want to uh, uh, tingle with his guitar. And uh, uh but Johnny said that, you know, he was a little reluctant of Jimi Hendrix tingling with his guitar because when he handed Jimi Hendrix his guitar, Jimi Hendrix turned the guitar upside down and, and put it on his leg. And he said that was kind of concerning for somebody to turn my guitar upside down. <laughs> uh, to and he was concerned about that. So, but there's all kind of stories, you know, that took place. And a lot of different artists uh, put their footprints on Jefferson Street by way of the Chillin' Circuit. You know, that happened. And the Chillin' Circuit was a circuit that uh, a lot of artists and musicians had a chance to travel around the country, especially the Southeast. And they uh, they would go from city to city and, uh, and, and play work. They would have work. To, uh, uh, they would have places to stay. But Nashville was one of the more favorite spots because Nashville, we had uh, Soul Train. I mean, not Soul Train, but Night Train. Night Train, right. We had Night Train, yeah. And uh, we had WLAC Radio, uh, which carried the music across the country. Uh, They said at late at night, I've had a couple of my buddies that was in Vietnam uh, to come to Nashville, I mean, to come home. And they said that uh, you could hear WLAC radio all the way over in Vietnam. So it was a powerful 50,000 uh, watt station uh, that traveled around the country. And the uh, artists and musicians was hearing this music coming out of Nashville from all over the country. Uh, uh, so... That was one of the attractions uh, that uh, we had here that they, did, that they didn't have in a lot of other cities. Uh, and plus, we had the first black variety TV show, uh, Night Train, uh, here in Nashville. So that was attractive to 
artists and musicians. And in Nashville, we had all of the the action on Jefferson Street with the three HBCU colleges, uh, Fisk University, Meharry Medical College, and Tennessee State, uh, Tennessee A&I State University. So we had all of this going on here on Jefferson Street and in North Nashville. We're going to talk so, a little bit more about the uh, larger influence of Jefferson Street when we come back. We need to take our second break right now. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. Hi, I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, this is Steve, the Garbage Man. Our company, The Garbage Man Incorporated, has been advertising on WKOM and WKRM for years now, and as a result, our company has really grown. Now we're looking for young, healthy, hardworking people to grow with us. We are in need of drivers and helpers. We pay serious money. So if you like outside work and want to work for a great local company, call me at 931-540-0919 and let's talk. Hey folks, this is Chandler Anderson from the Right Care Walk-In Clinics. Hey guys, we're open 11 to 11, seven days a week so that you don't have to go wait at the emergency room when you have an urgent care need. Our providers are all emergency medicine experienced or critical care experienced, and we're there to take care of you so that you're not caught at the emergency department for hours and hours on end. Folks, seven days a week, right in front of Walmart, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., we stay late so you don't have to wait at the ER. Serving Murray County for 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has provided the highest quality jewelry at the very best prices. They work hard to make their customers happy, and it's paid off. Their customers keep going back. Quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. We offer jewelry loans up to $4,500, and we will buy your gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still the same. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Terrence here at Shepherd Lumberyard, where we value you, the customer. We've been serving Columbia and surrounding areas since 1946. We're located in our new location at 103 Cemetery Avenue. Anything that has to do with building or remodeling, we're here to assist. When you shop local, you help shape the community. We are locally owned, family owned, and veteran owned. And by the way, God is in charge. You can reach us at 931-388-3612. And our website is shepherdlumberyard at yahoo.com. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
And welcome back to History's Hook. That's Come On, Dance, Dance, which is uh, a, a disco tune that was uh, produced uh, in part by our guest today, Mr. Lorenzo Washington, who is the curator now of the Jefferson Street Sound Museum. We're talking about the influence of Jefferson Street on American music. Uh, Some big musicians played on Jefferson Street in Nashville back in the 1950s and 60s. People like B.B. King and Aretha Franklin, Etta James, Ray Charles, Marvin Gaye. We've talked about Jimi Hendrix already. Just a quick story about my introduction to Jefferson Street. Not being from here, it was... A revelation to me, pretty pretty incredible. These stories that are coming out of this this really relatively small space in Nashville, Tennessee, and and so influential on the American music scene. I came about it sort of in a sideway view. Uh, one of the archives patrons, his name is Ron Johnson, documents cemeteries in Murray County, goes to various cemeteries, just documenting who's buried there, and he came across a cemetery in Murray County called Chavers Cemetery. And he discovered the grave of a man named Theodore Acklin, who was known as Uncle Teddy, who, while a student at Tennessee A&I, which is now TSU, opened the Del Morocco Club. Now, Acklin was a former professional baseball player. He'd played in the Negro Leagues back in the 1930s. And he opened this club. He turned the second floor into one of those high-end dining rooms, uh, which he called the Blue Room. His wife, Muffy Walker Acklin, was a former dancer who had worked with Nat King Cole She was a hairstylist at Joyce's House of Glamour, where no less than Aretha Franklin and Etta James got their hair done prior to their shows at the Del Morocco Club. What do you know about the Del Morocco, Mr. Washington? Well, the Del Morocco was uh, one of the more influential uh, clubs on Jefferson Street. A lot of great names stopped in the Del Del Morocco. Jimi Hendrix, of course, as you said, we've spoken of him, but he that was his home for a little over a year. He and Billy Cox, uh, when Billy Cox brought um, Jimi Hendrix to, to Nashville by way of Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, where they were uh, in, they were paratroopers uh, in the army. And, the, and yeah, and uh, those guys came to Nashville and uh, became of uh, became a part of this uh, music scene here uh, on Jefferson Street. Uh, there were a number of, of, of other musicians and artists like Annan Board Sam. Annan Board Sam was a, a, a great musician. He didn't make the fame that uh, Jimi Hendrix made, but uh, he showed. Uh, showed us a lot of good good times uh, in that there Morocco. Uh, we had uh, Duke Ellerton uh, played the, uh, played that club. Uh, James Brown played that club. B.B. Uh, King also played that club. Some of everybody played uh, the Del Morocco. And there was one thing about the clubs in Nashville. Uh, you could get a job you could get work at these clubs because the owners didn't want the same artist playing every week for months you know even at the uh they had Jimi hendrix there but they would bring another uh artist or group uh upstairs and Jimi hendrix may be playing 
downstairs, but they still um, had uh, different faces and names in the club so that it wouldn't get bored. Uh, and you wouldn't uh, uh, get bored going. So uh, the Del Morocco was one of the more favorite uh, clubs, especially uh, to the folks that had a little bit of money, because all the clubs at that time had gambling rooms in them. And uh, a lot of uh, uh, white uh, uh, club owners and bar owners used to sneak in the uh, Del Morocco uh, they come in the back door to go to the gambling rooms uh, in order to, you know, just come over on Jefferson Street and have a good time. And then there was another group that used to come down to the uh, uh, Club Baron, a white group from downtown Prentice Alley. A gentleman used to bring them uh, over on Jefferson Street about every three or four months, and he'd get a bus and have a whole busload of, of white uh, uh, patrons coming to the uh, club uh, club baron. And they'd have entertainment like B.B. Uh, King might be playing or Little Richard may be playing. They'd have those kinds of, uh, of acts uh, playing when they brought the whites to, uh, to Jefferson Street. And they, they had been hearing about and knew about all of this great music over on Jefferson Street and good time. So they wanted to be a part of all of that. There, so they, uh, there are two yeah. revelations that came to me, two, two big points that I think we want to make during this show. One is that one of the reasons why Jefferson Street was so influential musically has to do with its location, which you already mentioned. You had several historically black universities that were there who were bringing students uh, and educated folks from all over the country. And then you mm -hmm. had that local influence too. those people like you who were, you know, very much ensconced in, in Nashville and Tennessee society. Talk a little bit about that for just a second, about the sort of the amalgamation of all of those things that create Jefferson Street. Yeah, well, on Jefferson Street, Jefferson Street wasn't, uh, or North Nashville wasn't just a local thing because you had all of these students coming in from all over the country and other parts of the world, Africa, uh, Europe. You had uh, folk coming from everywhere to uh, to Jefferson Street, and so that uh, you know that melting pot was tremendous. Uh, in North Nashville and on Jefferson Street and the and the clubs and the club owners you know they uh, thrive on um, all of these nationalities uh, coming to coming to Jefferson Street um, so we had um, we didn't have a lot of problems back then you know uh, during those days so um the influence that uh, that Jefferson Street had on people, not so much the influence that people had on Jefferson Street, but with the the influence that Jefferson Street had on on p other people. And I say, you know, everybody from the bartenders to the club owners to the students to the locals, uh, everybody that actually stepped their foot on Jefferson Street left their footprint 
and they have a story. So there's many, many, many stories out there about uh, Nashville, Jefferson Street, North Nashville, uh, that's being told around the world uh, because Jefferson Street uh, was such a historical landmark and it, and it, uh, it, 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 it was, you know, it was our life of uh, Jefferson Street. It was our history. And that's what I'm doing now is trying to keep that, that history uh, uh, out front and, and, and alive. And I think uh, uh, what took place over here on Jefferson Street and the music should be a part of a, a curriculum in, in, the, in the schools that we should be able to teach uh, the students uh, about the legacy that they have that's not being told. I agree 100%. Another revelation to me, and this is an interesting one, at least in my mind, was that during the era of segregation, we often think about segregation uh, separate but equal. It was never that. Uh, that African-Americans really uh, sort of got the short shrift when it came to that, that they couldn't go to white-owned establishments. Here's where it gets flipped on Jefferson Street. These are black-owned establishments. These are black-only businesses, and white people couldn't go. And boy, did they want to. You mentioned in the book some white music lovers resorted to wearing dark makeup so they could sneak in to listen to the music. That's an amazing story. Right, right, right. But they... they felt a part uh, of, of this music scene because it was the music that they were listening to on the radio, but they couldn't, uh, uh, they didn't have a chance to actually be a part uh, of that scene. And so they wanted to be here. That's just like one of the gentlemen, uh, uh, one of the musicians who were one of the first white musicians to come over here on Jefferson in 61 or 62 and uh he played at the uh club still away uh on jefferson street and he told me out of his own mouth that in the summertime he would get one of the darkest suntans that he could get <laughs> and he would put makeup on it he would stand in back of the stage as far back from the uh from the front as he could and play because they loved his playing. He played with so much soul and they loved it. And um, so uh, he told me that story himself. Mr. Washington, unfortunately, we're out of time. We have so many more stories to tell. The beauty of this story is that you can learn these stories. There is a legacy to Jefferson Street, which sadly no longer exists in the manner in which we're speaking about it, over 300 homes, businesses, and even churches were demolished to make I-40, which runs through Nashville now. But you can learn about it by visiting the Jefferson Street Sound Museum, visiting Mr. Washington at that spot. That's all for this edition of History's Hook. I'd like to thank our guest, Lorenzo Washington. You can find his autobiography, Rising Above, on Amazon.com. You can shake his hand at the Jefferson Street Sound Museum, located at 2004 Jefferson Street in Nashville, Tennessee. We end today's show not with a quote, but with a song. What better song than one that exemplifies how we feel about our guest today? Respect by the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. 
Thanks for listening. Join us again next week as we connect history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time.